When it comes to delivering customer support, there are some things you don't want teams to hear. Intercom's streamlined support platform clears up space for more organized workflows and peace of mind. Our business messenger uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Who doesn't like the sound of that? Intercom. Less of this. And more of this. To learn more, go to intercom.com slash support. This is my you're back that is the sentiment i have heard from thousands of americans at restaurants walking through public parks sometimes just out on the street in emails online donations and i can't tell you how much it means to me this past week has been full of encouragement from president trump marjorie taylor green and jim jordan to the maga nation that shares so much love so let me assure you I have not yet begun to fight for the country I love and for the nation that I know benefits from America first principles. I'm built for the battle and I'm not going anywhere. This is Michael Cohen and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. There's more trouble for embattled sex fiend Matt Gates with the Daily Beast reporting Friday that the Florida congressman paid his MAGA party pal accused sex trafficker Joel Greenberg $900 via Venmo for alleged sex with three underage girls. Now, the Daily Beast offering new insight into the trail of money. Venmo records obtained by the site show how in May of 2018, Gates reportedly paid friend and then Seminole County tax collector Joel Greenberg $900. The next morning, Greenberg transferred money totaling the same amount to three young women, according to the report. I take the words of Margaret Thatcher to heart. If you want something said, get a man. If you want something done, hire a woman. I use the word alleged in the way people used to write alleged murderer when referring to Ted Bundy. Sure, that could be a perfectly logical explanation for that money. But it's also just as likely gets hired a trio of 17-year-old sex pots for a sweaty romp in the sack. Regardless, gets is beyond fucked. The smears against me range from distortions of my personal life to wild, and I mean wild, conspiracy theories. I won't be intimidated by a lying media, and I won't be extorted by a former DOJ officials and the crooks he is working with. The truth will prevail. The Daily Beast found the Venmo receipts from these transactions, and it really doesn't look good. According to the Beast, the memo field for the first of Getz's transactions to Greenberg was titled, Test. In the second, the Florida GOP congressman wrote, Hit up blank. But instead of a blank, Getz wrote a nickname for one of the recipients. The Daily Beast withheld her name because at the time of the incident, she was under 18. But according to sources, Blank now works as a porn star in the Sunshine State. We'll be coming out with more, but right now, this is just the start. I mean, what we've got with these Venmo payments are, I mean, we've got dates, we've got amounts, and we've got people's names. 
And it's worth noting that until now, what so many have reported is that this federal investigation extends to Matt Gates through his connection with Joel Greenberg, but we're looking at Venmo payments that are now in the hands of federal investigators themselves. Speaking of pornography, the Orlando Sentinel is reporting that when Getz was in the Florida State House, he was one of the two people who voted against the law that would crack down on revenge porn. According to former state representative fellow Republican Tom Goodson, Gates said that if someone sends an intimate image to their romantic partner, then that image becomes the partner's property to use however they want. Matt was absolutely against it. He thought the picture was his to do with what he wanted, Goodson said. He thought that any picture was his to use as he wanted to, as an expression of his rights. Uh, people in Florida talk about the panhandle the way that people outside of Florida talk about Florida. And so <laughs> there, there really isn't none of this behavior, uh, even if even if proved, uh, would would lead to him declining in his in poll numbers in 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 his district. You know, he he represents he represents that district and he and he represents it well. Uh, if anything, it's it could it could help him because now he's uh, you know tangling with the with the New York Times. There's also the super inconvenient truth that right after getting to Congress in 2017. Getz was the only, yes, the only fucking lawmaker to vote against a bill giving more resources to the federal government to fight, yes, you guessed it, the very thing he may be charged with now, human trafficking. Why is there one member of Congress from either party, from either chamber, one alone, who voted no, who voted against increasing law enforcement funding to combat child sex trafficking? They lie about me because I tell the truth about them and I'm not gonna stop. So when you see the leaks and the lies and the falsehoods and the smears, when you see the anonymous sources and insiders forecasting my demise, know this, they aren't really coming for me. They're coming for you. Then on Thursday, in a move destined to end up on Saturday Night Live, Gets his office released a statement purportedly from female staffers defending the MAGA heartthrob from allegations of impropriety. Despite being signed by the women of the office of U.S. Congressman Matt Gates, not a single actual woman was named. I'm not leaving. I'm not fucking leaving! <laughs> After the shocking allegations last week in the press, we, the women of Congressman Matt Gates's office, feel morally obligated to speak out, the letter began. During Congressman Gates' time in office, we have been behind the scenes every step of the way. We have staffed his meetings, we have planned his events, we have traveled with him, and we have tracked his schedule. I may be a canceled man in some corners. I may even be a wanted man by the deep state. But I hear the millions of Americans who feel forgotten. While Gates spent years with his head shoved up Donald Trump's ass, so far, the Donald has offered only tepid support. As I've said on previous episodes, loyalty with Donald Trump only goes one way. He never reciprocates unless it's in his best interest. 
and it's become quite clear that Gates is 100% useless to him. House Ethics Committee just announced it is launching an investigation into embattled Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates. The committee says that they're going to look into allegations of sexual misconduct, illegal drug use, sharing illicit photos of naked women on the House floor, and more presumably. Now the rest of the GOP is walking away from him as well. Only two House Republicans have defended Gates thus far. Judiciary Committee ranking Republican Jim Jordan, who himself has been accused of turning a blind eye towards sexual assault, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has repeatedly boasted the QAnon conspiracy theory, accusing Democrats of abusing children, and also happens to be batshit insane. If you could see uh, my text messages from uh, some of his current and former colleagues, uh, you know, I, I actually can't repeat what some of the, them say on morning television. And uh, it's because he has not made himself popular with most of his colleagues. And again, we're talking about his fellow Republicans, John. We're talking about people who he has antagonized in the name of uh, being, you know, as as beholden and as loyal to uh, the former president, Donald Trump, as possible in the name of being on conservative media, being on Fox News, being the darling of that. With all this service raging in the background, GOP leaders decamped to Palm Beach this past weekend to plot the future of the Republican Party. If recent events have not yet made things clear, today's GOP has fully embraced Trumpism as their present and future course, despite the fact that their leader clearly lost the election and cost them both the House and the Senate. Not to mention the fact that he's also fucking incited a riot and tried to overturn the election. But we have an extraordinary new excerpt from John Boehner's upcoming book, published in Politico, in which he really addresses how this problem in the Republican Party predates President Trump. And I want to read you just one expert that gets to the heart of the power of the buffoon wing. He says, these guys wanted a thousand percent, hundred percent every time. In fact, I don't think that would satisfy them because they don't really want legislative victories. They wanted wedge issues and conspiracies and crusades. A lot of them just wanted to blow up Washington. That's why they thought they were elected. Obviously, that's a huge mm -hmm. condemnation from a former Speaker of the House to the base of his political party that has led to people like Matt Gates. What's your take? With their emphasis on the culture wars, Dr. Seuss and identity politics... The GOP is betting that voters will respond to what divides them versus whatever transformative legislation in the form of COVID relief, infrastructure, or jobs is being pushed through by Democrats at the behest of the Biden administration. Georgia-based companies are facing backlash from Republicans after expressing their dissatisfaction with that state's new voting law. Now, Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola have found themselves in a heated fight with Governor Brian Kemp. After Delta's CEO, Ed Bastian, condemned the restrictive voting rights bill, Republicans in the state legislature are looking at increasing taxes on the company in retribution. A group of Georgia House Republicans is canceling Coca-Cola. They're saying Pepsi is okay. After the company's CEO spoke out against the state's new restrictive voting law, asking for all Coke products to be removed from their offices. GOP Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel tweeted, quote, guess what I am doing today? 
not watching baseball, followed by four exclamation marks. Former President Donald Trump is calling for conservatives to boycott corporations. Saying it's finally time for Republicans and conservatives to fight back. Boycott Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, J.P. Morgan Chase, Viacom, CBS, Citigroup, Cisco, UPS, and Merck. The radical left will destroy our country if we let them. We will not become a socialist nation. The GOP is betting that their voters simply don't care even if it will benefit them greatly. They see their people as being deeply aggrieved and they want someone to blame and they're making sure that they'll blame the Democrats. But not on the economy or actual systemic issues. The Democrats have that locked down. Recent party polling indicates that more than any issue, Republican voters crave candidates who won't back down in a fight with the Democrats. It doesn't matter what they are saying or doing, just that it is the opposite of whatever is happening in the New York Times. The New York Times accused of promoting cancel culture by highlighting how a young man got his revenge on a former classmate. The anger runs deep and the people who now make up the mainstream right feel the way of life that they have known is changing rapidly and they don't want it to change. It's why you are seeing wall-to-wall cancel culture on Fox News. This is what I call the phenomenon that, that's going on. It's, it's progressive fascism. Because what is fascism? Well, it's the, it's, the, it's the regimentation of the economy, of society, and it's the forced suppression of, of your opposition. That's what's happening right now. The Democrats have successfully... Um, captivated the institutions, you know, pop culture, Hollywood, our education institutions, and now our corporations into their own woke agenda. This is fascism, right? And they use cancel culture as, as a tool to impose their fascism on us. And so, so they're always using this, these anti, this anti-fascist labeling against the right, but they're the ones who actually engage in the tactics, and it's time we expose that. We may roll our eyes at this stuff, but it sticks with the kind of voter the GOP needs to turn out on election day and the more they run about dr seuss and major league baseball and coca-cola siding with democrats on voting rights the more the right is attempting to portray a nation in the grip of elites obsessed with identity politics and for people like us we're considered the lunatics i mean think of how how lacking in self-awareness do you have to be to call fox viewers lunatics because that's really what Mm. they're doing no i'm not saying they're right i'm just saying that's the plan The hope is that the GOP's plan to archie bunker itself into the past serves to alienate centrist voters. But if Biden succeeds with his increasingly visionary agenda, it won't matter what the GOP does. It's the economy, stupid. But for the first time, Biden aims to make it work for everyone. One, two, three, four, five, six. for the main event. Part of the GOP agenda is to make sure their conservative base has a constant enemy to target. Their belief is that by dividing the country, they will unite their party. This is how the politics of grievance works. There always has to be someone to blame. If it's not out-of-touch corporations run by elites, then it's out-of-touch media run by elites. It doesn't matter, just as long as it's somebody else. Donald Trump has been using this playbook for 40 years. 
He in turn got it from Roy fucking Cohn and Cohen, well, he got it from the devil himself. It takes a really good reporter to be able to peel back the layers of what's happening in this type of climate or it's being used as a political football. My next guest on Mea Culpa, Olivia Nuzzi, is quite possibly the best of a new generation of journalists who came of age during the Trump administration. She so fundamentally altered how it is one covers the presidency and politics that it rendered old methods obsolete overnight. Nuzzi, who started her career in 2015 covering the Trump campaign, knows better than most what's ticking beneath the orange mask. Nowadays, she serves as New York Magazine's first ever Washington correspondent and is authoring a book with Politico's Ryan Lizza about the 2020 campaign. If anyone can explain what the hell is going on right now, it's Olivia. So let's listen now to that conversation. So I want to start off by talking about Matt Getz, right? Not the salacious aspects of the scandal, which we have, um, which definitely has livened up Washington of late, but rather how a story like that can sit hidden under the surface for so long, only to suddenly break in the New York Times. Discuss with me, if you can, how a story like that is seemingly nowhere and then everywhere. Was Matt Getz a known skirt chaser and skeevy guy in and around Washington already? Or was it the kind of thing that everybody in town already knew and it was just a matter of time? Well, Matt Gates, I think he certainly had a reputation. He's got this kind of fratty persona. You know, um, he, he really, he comes across exactly as it turns out he is, right? Down to his aesthetic. But I think there's a difference between there being a serious investigation and potential criminal wrongdoing and someone having a reputation as a bit of a, a bit of a cad, a bit of a playboy. So it doesn't surprise me that it required uh, news of an investigation like this for this to become a mainstream story. Right. But it literally came out of nowhere. I mean, nobody. Well, let me rephrase that. Some people took what he did to me going back uh, when I was testifying live before the House Oversight Committee. And the day before my testimony, he, of course, trying to please the one and only Donald, right, his his new monarch, went ahead and tweeted lies about me, which basically are a foreshadow to what he is currently being accused of. So how does something like this just stay silent? I mean, the guy is a member of, you know, of Congress, and yet everybody knows that he was a sleaze, you know, just a total sleazebag and a skirt chaser. Just how does something like this stay silent? Well, uh, it's not exactly unusual for those characteristics that you describe, uh, to exist in Washington, uh, certainly among lawmakers. Uh, again, I, I don't think, I think the fact that you say it came out of nowhere, I mean, you could say that about any story. There are all sorts of things that are open secrets in Washington um, that don't rise to the level of being reported about in a mainstream news publication uh, unless they are the subject of an investigation. So I don't think it's that unusual. And I also think Matt Gates, you know, he's just he's a member of Congress. He's not particularly powerful. 
it's not as though he has been extremely influential or his ideology has been extremely influential. He kind of hitched his wagon to Donald Trump, to his monarch, as you said. Um, and it seems like his objective has been to be a television personality. Um, and that was the case even before he leaked that he was thinking about resigning from Congress to join Newsmax ahead of the New York Times reporting on the investigation. It seems like his trajectory or, or what he wanted his trajectory to be was, was rather clear for the last several years. He wanted to do or say outrageous things to get a lot of attention on Twitter and to have that translate into media attention and to him getting on Fox News or Newsmax or OANN or whatever the far right uh, TV network of the day is. Right. Well, it makes perfect sense. Well, let me ask you this then. In an October 2020 column, you wrote for New York Magazine about Trump enabling Republicans who hid behind anonymous sourcing and leaked their displeasure about the former president. And you wrote the following, and I quote, I'm part of a system that enables the political leaders to have it both ways, to indulge in ugliness and irresponsibility and to distance themselves from their own actions. The press provides the alibi as it prosecutes the case, end quote. And then you wrote this just before the election. But it seems even more prescient in the aftermath of January 6th. Can you unpack this quote for my listeners as it relates to those Republicans who rode with Trump all the way over the cliff? And finally, have you spoken to your source since the Capitol riot? Yeah, so that was a profile of one of my anonymous sources, uh, one of many anonymous sources, certainly in the Trump era. Um, and like a lot of other people in Washington, this person was publicly aligned with the Trump administration. Most people, if they knew what he did uh, professionally, would say that he was working for the president. And yet privately, this person was quite open and remains quite open about um, how much they disliked the president thought that he was an idiot, uh, thought that he was inept, and uh, thought that a lot of what he did was destructive to the country. And so I got thinking, you know, I got to thinking about what it really meant for me and, and other reporters to rely so heavily on people who were knowledgeable about the administration, knowledgeable about what was happening, um, and who were basically living a lie. And I thought it was a very interesting dynamic and, you know, one in which the press was guilty of certain sins um, and, and it was worth exploring. So that's where that quote comes from. It comes from uh, from that that story. And yes, I, I have spoken to that source since the January 6th riots. And do they know anything about the January 6th Capitol riot? Well, I, I can't provide too much information without risking uh, identifying them. But, you know, their view of the riot was the view of I, there was another story I wrote, um, I think, after that, where I was speaking to a different member um, of the Republican Party in Washington, someone else who you would argue um, worked for Donald Trump. This person, uh, the second person was a was a senior Trump administration official and they were driving to work one day after the riot and they were talking to me about how disgusted they were and how basically everything that, that he believed up until that point that was an overstatement by the press being dramatic that you know Trump was this fascist that he uh, he was a shitty person that that this was 
you know, so destructive to democracy, he had previously thought that was just dramatic or just the press kind of being uh, in a mania and an anti-Trump mania. Um, and on his way to work that day, he told me that he now realized that all of that stuff was basically true. But it, it doesn't really hmm. count for much if you're not coming out and saying it publicly, of course. Yeah, but, you know, we're in a funny situation as it deals with the press. And I've had quite a few members of the press on this show. And some of the things that we talk about is what do you do when you have a source that wants to be kept anonymous? Well, obviously, you have to use that source until, of course, that source burns you. And then, of course, it would be upon you. But what then happens when you're looking for a second source to corroborate and those two people are in cahoots in order to turn around and to mm -hmm. sort of di di direct the press into an area that is absolutely a lie. Now, you know, I've talked a lot about this on the program, and I've talked about this even on television. Corey Lewandowski is one such individual who I have personally seen, and I have emails to the same effect, whereby he was directing the press into a direction that is absolutely untruthful and a massive, massive lie. Of course, all once again, for the benefit of Donald Trump. And then he would use Dave Bossy, his cohort, who ultimately became his partner in business, in order to corroborate the lie. So what do you do mm -hmm. as a journalist in order to combat that when they're providing you with a, you know, with two sources are providing you with information right. that you're trying to write about? Well, I think... Well, let me say one thing first. You you were talking about anonymous sources. You're saying that in, you have to rely on that person until they burn you. You don't have to rely on anybody. You know, you don't have to quote anonymous people if you don't want to. It just so happens that there are many cases when you're reporting on government when it's helpful to do so, when the people who are knowledgeable or who have valuable insight are not people who would be able to have their names attached to their comments publicly if they wanted to maintain their positions of power and continue to be able to provide you with with valuable information, valuable insight. So it's a case-by-case -case thing. Um, and it's always a negotiation in terms of, I mean, you know this, in terms of what type of attribution you settle on with your source. And that old J-School rule and, and newsroom rule that a lot of places have, that you have to have two independent sources that didn't really apply with Trump world. As you say, it wasn't just Corey Lewandowski or David Bossie. It was all throughout the administration and all throughout the president's orbit outside of the administration officially. I would probably have to spend twice the amount of time that they ordinarily would reporting a story because even if I had 10 sources telling me the same thing, I could never be sure that they were not in cahoots with one another. And so it was this constant process and, and remains this constant process of kind of sifting through the bullshit and trying to figure out who I can trust, um, who's likely to be colluding with somebody else to to plant some kind of bullshit story with me. Um, it's very time consuming and it's a case by case thing where you just have to be um, really careful and always be aware of who your sources really are and what their connections are and who they're friends with and what their motives are. Um, and it's very complicated. So I, I think it's, um, 
I think it's a more complicated process than it sometimes seems to readers or, or to media critics when they just see, you know, yet another anonymously sourced anecdote in the press relating to Donald Trump. Yeah, I think it's more than that. Honestly, I think it's almost an impossibility because your job is to write about stories and you go and you seek the highest level individual closest to that story. Now, as you said, that's true. There are so many different ways that they source people today, you know, whether it's on background, off the record, etc. I don't see today a single article that doesn't have one of these um, sources somehow attributed to the story. And my biggest fear is what happens, like what happened under the Trump administration or even the Trump campaign, when the whole purpose is to misguide the, journal, the journalists so that you can get a story out there, whether it's the story of Ted Cruz's father being involved right, in the killing of John F. Kennedy or Marco Rubio being naked with a bunch of guys um, in a swimming pool after a cocaine party or half a dozen other stories that are out there that there's just no way to prove or to disprove. And so you write the story, which, of course, again, is your job. I mean, look, don't forget how many stories were written about me that were absolutely inaccurate. And yet they just went on and on. And I don't care whether it was about Prague or paying Russian compromats or my phone being located in the Czech Republic or people having photos of me, um, you know, crossing some German border. Right. All of which is absolutely not true. Or having a dacha directly next door to Putin's home, which was, of course, included in the steel dossier. I mean, it's and it just lies upon lies upon lies. And this really I hate to say it. There's little to do other than possibly, you know, hold somebody responsible down the road. But then again, how do you do that without giving up your source? I really, truly don't know. Hey, everybody. My eyesight is pretty rough these days. Some of it's simply because I'm getting older. But there's also the fact that I spent decades reading legal documents with tiny print. And then there's the hours I spent um, inside prison reading in very low light. And nothing destroys your eyes faster than squinting at a paperback for six hours in a darkened cell. And now with my podcast, my new book, and even more documents to read, I get headaches, eye strain, and crazy migraines like you wouldn't believe. Recently, though, a friend introduced me to Blue Blocks. After trying several pairs, I settled on their summer glow blue light glasses. There's no magic. I simply put them on during the day when working with screens or under artificial light. I tried just about everything before I got a pair of these bad boys, including a couple of expensive prescription frames that seemed to just make matters worse. Blue blocks just work better. Here's some of the finer points about blue blocks. They're made in optics laboratories in Australia, not mass produced in factories in Asia. The frames are super stylish that and have been featured in Vogue. They're constructed with science-backed technology, tested to ensure they work, unlike other blue light glass companies. They're a little more expensive than other brands, but they're worth every penny just to have gotten rid of those migraines. Besides, you get what you pay for. After getting my Summer Glow blue light glasses from Blue Blocks, I felt immediate relief, not just from digital eye strain, but my migraines and my headaches lessened as well. Plus, 
The cool yellow lenses make me look, well, like a rock star. Glasses come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options. Blue blocks his glasses for every need. Blue light for helping digital eye strain. Summer glow for helping with low mood and migraines. And sleep plus for improving your sleep. Blue Blocks also has other amazing products, such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, and 100% blackout sleep masks, all backed by science. Blue Blocks ship worldwide in rapid time. Easy returns and exchanges. So go to blueblocks.com slash Cohen and use coupon code Cohen to save 15% on your order. That's blueblocks.com slash Cohen and use coupon code Cohen to save 15%. But I am curious if you would tell me, Olivia, if you've spoken at all with Kellyanne Conway since Trump lost the election, because she's been remarkably she's been remarkably quiet for someone who once justified all of his bullshit, meaning Trump's bullshit, by saying that they were and these are her words, alternative facts. Are the folks who stuck with Trump through his presidency, like Kellyanne, now disgusted with him, knowing what his words and actions finally wrought? I mean, I, I think that's a question for Kellyanne. I'm not going to disclose who I have or I, or I have not spoken to uh, in terms of sources. But obviously, I, I profiled Kellyanne Conway at the beginning of the Trump administration. Um, and I... You know, she's someone who I think most reporters have have kept in contact with throughout the Trump administration. But in terms of how people are, you're seeing some people like Stephen Miller who are more on board than ever, right, publicly and more aligned with Trump than ever. Um, and it seems like other people have kind of receded into the backdrop and, and are not either not yet sure or not yet ready uh, to come out and talk about their experience working for Trump or what they think of it in hindsight. Well, that's true, because it's not only Stephen Miller that seems to have now elevated himself even to a position greater than when he was in the administration and how he ended up staying. I have no idea. He is one weird fucking guy. But on the same <laughs> on the same note, I mean, he's a weird fucking guy. Uh, then you have Jason Miller, right? The Miller sisters over here. Of course I knew him. Right. What I mean, was, uh, he was just what was your relationship like with Stephen Miller? Very hands off. He I, I believe that he has real issues. Um, I didn't particularly care for him. I always found Meaning, him to be wait, almost like, like I almost found him to be like a white supremacist in his ideology. I didn't like the things that he was writing when Trump was going uh, on these various different rallies. I just found them to be um, elitist, white supremacist, uh, sort of anti-American sort of rhetoric. And I just never liked I never liked him. I thought he was off. It was very hard to sit and have a conversation with him. It was even harder to have him look you straight in the eyes when you're having that conversation. So, like I said, there's something very, very off from, you know, about him. Uh, Jason Miller was no different, except Jason could look you in the eyes and lie to you right to your face. He's just another fucking grifter who sees Donald Trump as some you know, um, money train that they could advance for themselves any different than Matt Gates. They all know that, you know, this is their last chance to have a career, right, that's predicated off of Trump. Because think about it. 
Do you know another member of Congress? And I don't care how screwed up they are from the Marjorie Taylor Greens to the Ted Cruz's to the Matt Getz to the, you know, to the you name it, um, to the Mark Meadows, to the Jim Jordans that would actually hire Stephen Miller to write anything for them. Well, Jeff Sessions did, right? Well, and, and how, long did Jeff, right, how long did Jeff <laughs> yeah. Sessions actually last? Yeah, I'm curious. So you obviously you knew Trump very, very well. You worked for Trump uh, among all of these people who you you now think or you now realize uh, are not good people like Stephen Miller. What is it in your view about Trump's personality or his psychology that allows him to be surrounded by these strange types of people like Stephen Miller, someone who you said can't look you in the eye? Like, why would Trump want to be around someone like that? Because there are means to an end. He doesn't care about any of them. See, this is the mistake that Matt Getz is making. Matt Getz actually thinks that Trump gives a shit about him, but he does not, which is why this whole thing about whether he was actually looking for some blanket pardon prior to Trump leaving office that he and others didn't get. Trump will throw him under the bus as fast as he threw me under the bus, as fast as he would throw anybody under the bus. But for some unknown reason, there's something missing in each and every one of us that we find Donald Trump's appeal to help to bolster some inadequacy that we have. And what it is about it. I don't know how he manages to create this cult-like atmosphere. Look, I have a I have lawsuit pending right now against Trump organization and Trump for legal fees. And we've deposed a whole bunch of people from the general counsel to, um, you know, to the lawyers, to some of the lawyers. And they even lie under oath. They even miss, they make misstatements under oath as we're deposing them. And I'm sitting there watching and I'm shaking my head. And I said, holy shit, if you guys are so stupid as you can't see what happened to me, the fact that you're sitting there now under oath and lying without acknowledging the fact that the penalties of perjury are significant. It's one of the charges that ended up sending me off to Otisville. And yet they still do it. And they just fucking lie. Why? Because it's all for the benefit of one man. It's, it's crazy why they're doing it, why I did it. I have no idea. Like I said, we were all possibly missing something in ourselves that we thought we can get because we were working for Trump or... Um, there's some grand idea that you may have um, that's affiliated to Trump. It's a great question. It's something I wrestle with every single day of my life, why I didn't listen to my wife and children and get the hell out of that company early on. You see, unlike the Jason Millers of the world, right, who, do- who doesn't even pay for his own kid, right, other than the Stephen Miller, who's just a fucking wackadoodle, I didn't come to Trump. He came to me to hire me. And I didn't go to work for Trump like they did for the salary. I, 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 was, I, I was retired at the age of 39 or semi-retired. And I didn't need to work for Trump for a living. I actually took a pay cut for working for Trump uh, as opposed for myself in, 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 the, in my practice of law and real estate. So my... Mine is even worse than theirs, to be honest. Yeah, I was going to say you. that's even weirder. So, it have is. you? Do you have any theories about 
what it is about you that drew you to someone like him? I think it was the celebrity stardom, but I wrestle with that idea every single day because I knew celebrities. I knew celebrities, but way before I was working for Trump, I represented people with substantially more money than Trump. I don't know what it was about him. Maybe it was the glitz, the gram, the glamour. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just screwed up in my head. Maybe I do need to see a, a therapist or something because I don't have the answer, and I search for that answer each and every day. But l- let me just keep moving on here, Olivia, because we could talk about my personal problems forever. Um, one thing I can understand is how these Republican senators can continue to push Trump's big lie about the election. They know it's all bullshit, and we know that they know, but they continue to press the case. Why? Because there is a large chunk of their base who believe it as well. How do we get past this moment? Because to me, it feels like we are at some end point for where there is absolutely no return. I mean, what do you think happens next? In the Republican Party, you mean? Yes, of course. The Democrats don't believe any of this. I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, obviously there's a pretty loud faction of the Republican Party that is content to continue to align themselves with Trump and to treat him as a sort of kingmaker. And they, I think, if anything, are getting more extreme in the way that they talk about January 6th and less detached from reality. Uh, Whereas in the beginning, right after or that day, you were hearing people really distance themselves from the rioters, really try to make it seem as though they felt no connection to the rioters and and they completely denounced them. Now, I, I feel like it's more common when the subject arises to hear people on the right not outright defending them, but sort of defending them or downplaying what it is that they did and and kind of just trying to rewrite history. And I, I think that's going to be the case for the foreseeable future where Republicans are going to, certain Republicans are going to remain terrified of Trump's base. And until there's a real test of that in the, in the next election, the midterms, uh, I don't think that we're really going to see Uh, a diversion from this path that the party seems to be on. But you do have, for example, the Proud Boys. It appears to me that at least the leadership are now distancing themselves from Trump. You see, that's actually a very Trumpian thing to do. He likes things with the letter D, right? He distances himself from people. He denigrates them, right? Um, He disparages them. I mean, these are all the D words that Donald loves so much that he can't spell. But you have a lot of these people. Wait, wait, explain that to me. What what do you mean, the D words? Do you you mean because his name starts with a D? He, he He likes D words? Yes. Yes. But what happened is now you're starting to see people like the leader of the Proud Boys distancing themselves from Trump. And you're starting to see his base really step away from him. So you're right. The midterm elections are going to show a lot. But something that you also brought up about the rioters, you know, I've always saw the rioters as two separate and distinct groups of individuals. So one group was there because Donald Trump told them to be there. His MAGA warriors uh, that were there in order to take over the Capitol in the name of the king, to stop the electoral count, to interfere with Congress, and therefore, in one way, sort of 
propelled Donald Trump to become the autocrat, the monarch, the dictator that he has so desperately wanted to be since he became president of the United States. But then there's a whole second group that's there. And I'm not sure if people really follow this. The second group are just people that wanted to be somewhere, that they wanted to Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat pictures of them at this capital insurrection. And they were just there for the social media presence that you see, whether it's at parades or at, you know, um, some of these marches. They're not really there because they believe in the cause. They're there because they're fucking bored as a result of this pandemic. They're, you know, they're itching to get outside and to do something. They want to show that they're part of something in a Snapchat, a Facebook, to show that their lives aren't like mine, stuck inside a house 22 to 24 hours a day. That's the other group. And they're not really a part of this conversation because, you know, they just got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Again, something that well, like happened to me. I, I don't think that that's quite right. You don't just get caught up. Uh, trespassing on the Capitol and when police officers are being killed and violence is erupting and people are being shot, you don't just get caught up, stumble, you don't just stumble into the Capitol at a moment like that, right? It's not as though people seem to wander in there and look up and say, oh shit, I've, I've accidentally trespassing in the Capitol. You make a decision to do that. And I mean, there's a lot of research about mobs and mob mentality um, that the could explain this better than I can paraphrasing it. But I mean, this is why mobs are so terrifying because as you said, people are bored. People want to have a sense of community and they can get kind of whipped up into a frenzy around others and take part in behavior that if you were to have asked them if they approved of it prior to them doing it, they probably would have said no. Or if they were to stop and really think about it, they probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't want to do it. But yet in the moment, in a mob, uh, they behave as the mob behaves. I don't think that that necessarily means, I don't know what the the courts will say. I don't know what judges will say. Uh, but I don't think that that necessarily means that they are any less culpable for what happened that day than the people who plotted and wanted it to happen are. Right. I, I never brought up the issue of culpability. I was just bringing into play the two distinct groups of people that I saw uh, there on January 6th. You know, th you're right. These people would not have, but for the mob mentality, stormed the Capitol. But because everybody was walking in, hey, I'm live streaming, baby. Right. Why do I want to stop my live stream? I'm I'm seeing thousands of people now sending me thumbs up and hearts and this and that. So, you know, there's so much more here that goes, you know, into what happened that we can unpack. But I, I agree with you um, there. They will be held responsible to the same extent as those that came in paramilitary gear with bear spray and and zip ties and guns and knives and so on. Right. I mean, both groups are, are terrifying, right? I mean, both groups are terrifying in their own way. And I, I don't I don't know that I think that the latter group, the group of people who maybe just joined in because they got uh, wrapped up in the excitement of a violent mob, I don't know that I consider them to be any less bad than the first group of people with zip ties and, and paramilitary gear. Uh, I, I think that both of those groups represent a different uh, but no less terrifying type of decay 
in our culture and our society and this just this evil that is just rampant and this lack of empathy for other people and this extreme polarization and hatred of the other side um you know if you stumble into the capital and you're there when people are are beating up police officers and, and killing them or if you had dreamt of a day like that and were waiting for it uh i i don't know i think you're you're both evil and anti-american in your own way no, I, i'm not going to disagree with you on that again i was just pointing out to in my opinion the two different groups you know one of which uh, I'm not 100% certain that they will vote for the Republican uh, simply in order to advance Trump's big lie. That's that's where I was getting to. I think that there's a possibility of getting these people back to normalcy, whereas those that came in for the sole purpose of storming the Capitol and hurting and killing police officers, I don't think that there's any way to ever get them back. Now, they may think or they may say to the court, oh, yeah, I realized I made a mistake and I want to be better and so on. I'm not so sure it's possible. But what, what the hell yeah. do I know? But, you know, to your point about the Proud Boys, you were saying that the Proud Boys have distanced themselves from Trump. It's yeah, people are going to say whatever the hell they need to say if if they're at risk of going to jail. I mean, you know this better than anyone, right? Would, would yeah, you except have I didn't. Come out? I didn't. But Olivia, I didn't just say anything. I told the truth. That's the big difference. They're not. They'll say anything. They'll you, lie. They'll do. They'll do whatever they need have, to do. But would you have told the truth if you were not at risk yourself? Probably not. Probably not. I would have not stuck around because of the danger of potentially going to jail. But I don't know whether or not I would have come out and told the truth. And the answer is I probably would not have. And it's the one and only thing that I am thankful for what has occurred, uh, because it has given me the ability to tell the truth and to ensure, as far as I'm concerned, that the story is accurate and that Donald Trump goes down in history as the villain of his own story. That's not something that I that I want to ever be is the villain of his story. As the occurrence of identity scams continue to increase, more people are looking for ways to protect themselves from cyber criminals. In fact, 60% of Americans believe it is likely that identity theft will cause them a financial loss in the next year. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cyber criminals around the world keep finding new ways to steal identities. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Device security blocks cyber criminals from stealing personal information on your devices. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the personal information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock identity theft protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at Norton.com slash Cohen. Do you miss him at all? Do you miss being around him and being kind of feeling like you're at the center of everything with him? You know, there are times that I recall things that we were doing, the excitement that was surrounding it, 
But then I look to see presently as I walk by myself during my two hours that I'm allotted out uh, from home confinement, and I despise I despise him, and I'm, I'm, I'm so disappointed at myself. I'm so angry at myself for allowing myself, and I've always considered myself to be incredibly strong, to fall under the spell of this cult leader. How, why, again, failing to listen to my wife. I talk about this a lot in, the, in my book, Disloyal. Yeah. Um, I, how I allowed myself to fall under the spell of someone who I knew to be so morally bankrupt. Um, I don't know. Do I miss it? I have to be honest with you on this one. No, I don't. I really, I really don't. I, I can't say that when I think about some of the fun that we had in the past, that I don't think about those with fond memories, including the people there that I used to call my friends. But um, no, I don't miss that life at all. And um, I'm just angry at myself that I didn't walk away from it on my own volition. But I do want to ask you, Olivia, on Vox Conversations with guest host Sam Sanders, you said the following about rabid Trump supporters, and I quote again, it's not as though they just acquired their capacity to believe the things he had them believe, or that he encouraged them to believe, or that he promoted on June 16th of 2015. They had the capacity before that. Maybe they believed in birtherism. Maybe it predates that. Maybe it predates the Tea Party, the racist response to Obama's election. Maybe it dates back to Newt Gingrich. Maybe it dates back to Barry Goldwater. But he did not create those people who descended on the Capitol. You know, he activated them. And I don't think maybe they will run off and lie dormant for a while, but I doubt it. I don't think that they will go away. Discuss with me how this changes politics, knowing that one party possesses a potentially violent armed faction. I I don't know how it changes politics. I think that the trends of negative partisanship, which is the technical term for this, have been moving this way. You know, the parties further and further apart from each other for decades now. I mean, certainly since the Gingrich Revolution. And I, you know, prior to this, I, I, I wasn't sure what you were going to read there. I don't remember when I when I did that interview, but I, I remember giving an interview prior to the insurrection. I think prior to the election, and someone was asking me about a about potential violence, and I, my prediction, was, which was completely wrong, was that you know the Trump supporters, however much they might be stocking up on on weapons or you know thinking that they were preparing for some kind of response to more civil unrest, like we saw following the murder of George Floyd. I, I talked to a lot of Trump supporters who were, you know, buying AR-15s who thought that the protesters were going to be coming to their rural towns in New Hampshire or wherever. I really didn't think that Trump's supporters were going to do something like they did on January 6th. I, I didn't predict it. I, you know, you go to the rallies, you've been to, to Trump rallies, and they're, they're rowdy crowds sometimes, and sometimes they do get violent, um, and they turn on each other or they turn on a protester. But even though I have had some experiences at those rallies where I, where I felt um, like things were a little dicey or I, I was worried about um, you know, a group of skinheads I saw, 
in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I I didn't think that having been to all those rallies for you know, dozens of them over the course of five years, I kind of thought that I knew what those crowds were were inclined to do or what they were capable of. And it turned out that I was completely wrong. And I, I don't think that I am alone in that realization. I'm not saying everyone got it wrong similarly, but um, I don't think I'm alone in that realization that, that you know, January 6th proved that these people are capable of, of much worse and, and much greater violence and much more evil than I initially thought that they were. I did not have violent insurrection on my, uh, you know, predict- list of predictions for for uh, the period of time of the transition. But I, I think I think that these trends have been moving this way, and I, I think it's really toxic. But I don't have any idea what the cure for it is. It seems like it's just getting worse, frankly. Yeah, I don't think that there is a cure. I think the cure is going to be our amazing law enforcement that every day has their nose to the to the ground, you know, watching chat rooms with their sources on the inside, letting them know what happens. And, you know, thank God that they are as good as they are, because I'm shocked that things haven't been worse. I mean, Trump really unleashed the worst of these individuals and these groups. Uh, now, interesting, you may find this. I actually never went to a Trump rally, even during the campaign. Really? I, ne- I never went to a rally. You may find that hard to I went to um, Ohio for the, uh, what do you call it, for the big for the big event. And then, of course, I went um, uh, to the Wait, election what, what night. Oh, oh, you mean Cleveland for the convention? Yes, I'm sorry, the convention. Oh. I was blanking on the word. Um, but uh, I never went to a single rally. Uh, I didn't want to travel with this group of people. I didn't particularly care for them. Truth be told, you, I never thought any of them. You didn't want to be on a plane them. with Corey Lewandowski? I'm surprised. I, I, I'd, I'd rather... Uh, I, I'm not even going to say it because a lot of people get angry <laughs> when I start using foul language. And, you know, I, I wanted to be nowhere near him at all. But I do have to say that the collective trauma inflicted by Trump on this nation is almost incalculable. And yet, for many, he still remains their savior and their messiah. How long do you think that it'll take for this country to move on from where we currently find ourselves? I I don't know. I mean, Trump, even though he is deplatformed, and even though the statements that he puts out uh, via 45 office, I guess is what they're calling the the post-presidential office, they don't really travel very far, those statements. And when he does interviews now, I think he did one uh, yesterday on Newsmax, it doesn't really seem like they break through. He still is so, he looms so large for so many of his supporters and so many lawmakers who are terrified of his supporters. And I, I really don't know how long that will last. I think it will, I think it will require an election proving that he is not relevant for that to go away. But well, it's, obviously it's funny. there's a... It, it's really funny that you that you talk about Newsmax and and so on. I and I, I don't mean to interrupt you. And again, you know, my listeners get angry. I, I try not to do it, but I did want to ask you if you saw the interview that Donald did with his daughter-in-law, Lara. I I, I saw like the Daily Mail aggregation of that interview. I did not watch the whole thing. <laughs> and tell me your thoughts, because then I'm going to share with you mine. 
I mean, <laughs> she did in, I'm not, I'm not going to say in Laura's defense, but she did start out as I think it was for um it was for one of the tabloid shows like not extra or et but one of the um maybe inside or something like that one I think of it was inside edition shows. yeah 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 inside edition she did start out I believe as a correspondent for inside edition so she has some background in doing those types of gauzy kind of uh, lighthearted TV tabloid interviews that obviously Donald Trump has done a million of over the course of his lifetime. But obviously, you know, being interviewed by your own family member uh, who's thinking about running for office yourself on the basis of uh, her support from your supporters, it's, it's probably not going to be too hard hitting. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I find her to be pathetic. She's almost as stupid as her husband, Eric. Um, I mean, she wasn't even a correspondent over at Inside Edition. She, she I mean, it, it, she's just pathetic. I mean, and the whole thing was pathetic. So tell me, how do you think it's going to be when you make the announcement in 2024? And she's sitting there Googling. Does she not realize that Donald fucking hates her? He always disliked her. He never wanted Eric Wait, to marry really? her. really? Yes, really. And he was, Wait, by the way, more. he was forthright. Okay. You know, like, does he have a car? Right? <laughs> tell me more. Uh, it's not true. And he's even come out and he made it as a joke when he was speaking before a group of supporters, donors in a Washington, um, in, in, at the Washington Hotel, the Trump Hotel. And he turns and says, you know, I didn't really like her. I didn't like her at all. And then all of a sudden I see this girl on television and she's talking so great about me. And then I look and it's Laura. And I said to Eric, was that your wife on? Of course it's his wife, you idiot. You, right? Didn't you pay for the freaking wedding? Frank, don't you know what your daughter-in-law looks like? And he goes, and he goes, uh, then he goes, oh, I used to do it to him to his face. And then, and then he was like, and now, now she's my favorite. She's my favorite. She comes out and she talks, she talks about me all the time with such glowing reviews. It's just such more bullshit. But, you know, I want to ask you, Olivia, I'm curious about how your life has changed as a reporter and a real Washington correspondent now that you're covering a very different kind of a president. Because what I know is that covering Trump was nearly a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job as he was constantly breaking news. Has Has it been a strange adjustment for you? Um, it has been strange. It's been it's been a bit of a relief in a lot of ways, just because aside from any political considerations or concerns about the state of our democracy, I covered Trump beginning. I think the first time I interviewed him was November of 2014. Um, and I covered him every day starting on June 16th, 2015, when he announced and the story, I mean, you know this as well. It's not just that it was like a ceaseless torrent of news every day. It it was also that the story never really ended. It never felt like anything was ever concluded. It was just like one big, long saga with this ensemble cast that nobody ever really went away. They just kept including more people in the cast. And it just felt so crushing by the end all of the history and the context that you would have to consider anytime any new development happened with Trump or his White House or his administration Um, and so there's been a bit of a relief to feel like there's a, a kind of not a clean slate but 
there's a, a new group of people to consider and new questions to consider and new characters who are not um, not as colorful as most people in Trump world, definitely, um, but who are no less interesting, at least to me as a reporter. And there was also something about, you know, being a writer covering Trump. It was also fucking obvious. Like you didn't have to be particularly skilled to write something interesting or colorful about Trump because, or anyone in his, in his administration, because they were such compelling characters and so overtly strange. You didn't really need to have an eye for the interesting detail or uh, the odd anecdote because it, it was also in your face. And so there's kind of been a return to um, critical thinking and creativity that I have found refreshing these last couple of weeks. And the reason I ask you that question, Olivia, is because I found this passage that you wrote about President Joe Biden uh, particularly moving, and I'm going to quote it. These are your words. If other politicians campaign in poetry and govern in prose, Joe Biden does both in eulogy. For five decades, his pain has been a most unusual political asset, a cynical gift disguised as a curse. Looking back, it seems obvious it would deliver him to the presidency at our darkest moment. Discuss what you meant by it being a cynical gift. Do you not find the president's empathy authentic, or were you referring to the way others have cast his life for him? The latter. Um, I, I think I think that line, um, it's easy to misinterpret and, and to think that I'm somehow criticizing him for, um, for using his loss as a political tool. Um, but it's simply true that his origin story, which for anyone listening, I, I don't know if anyone is not aware of it at this point, but he, he has suffered unimaginable loss throughout his life. His uh, baby daughter and his first wife, Nelia, were killed in a car accident uh, and his two sons survived, but his one of those sons died in 2015 from a brain from brain cancer. Um, just a staggering amount of loss for one person, for one family to endure. And I think that it is almost perversely the key to his success as a politician. I mean, obviously, he was he was elected to the Senate in Delaware prior to that loss. Um, it was before he was sworn in, but after the election that that car crash happened. Um, and so he was already politically successful. But to connect on the on the scale that you have to connect when you're a vice president or when you are a president of the United States, I, I think requires something different. And unfortunately and tragically, the gift that he has that, that allows him to connect with people, and you see it, I think, most clearly zoomed in very up close. You don't Trump connects on an arena stage with thousands of people. He connects as a showman. Biden connects, you know, looking people in the eye and, and putting his hand on their shoulders. Um, and it is like just kind of fucked up, frankly, for lack of a better or more articulate way to put it, that this horrific personal tragedy has morphed into this incredible political gift. And, and that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, it's really a gift of... Um... It's 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 really a gift of humanity in all fairness. I mean, yeah, but there's and what I was also trying to get out in that line is that there you know there's 
as real as his loss is and as as heartbreaking as it is, we could all recognize that. And he certainly it is not a choice that that is the political gift that he has, this ability to empathize and to relate to people at this very deep level. There's still something uncomfortable about watching it. And there's still something uncomfortable about the fact that our personal tragedies are or, you know, are what allow us to connect with other people. And, and I think it's it's not it's not his fault, but it's just that any part of your personal history or your your personal tragedy that you use for a political end, there's something uncomfortable about that. And so I was trying to kind of explain that's where the word cynical came from in that line, that besides being fucked up and awful, that he's, you know, saddled with this and that this is what gives him this kind of almost mystical quality that that people relate to and that draws people to him. Politics is so strange and politicians are so strange. And it's such a weird way to live, to always be seeking connection and approval from strangers. And it's a strange thing to observe. It's very hard to make sense of politicians. That's why I write about them because they're so complicated and so strange. Um, so that's sort of what I was trying to get out there in, in the other sense. April in New York City can be a dreary month. Winter may be over, but the true warmth of spring has not yet arrived. And then there's the rain, and worst of all, taxes are due. Frankly, I'd rather take the whole month off. So if, like me, you're in need of a positive experience to balance it all out, consider protecting your loved ones by getting life insurance with Policy Genius. Policy Genius can help you compare top insurers in one place and save 50% or more on life insurance. Once you find your best option, the Policy Genius team will set up your new policy for you and answer any questions you have along the way. And you can feel good knowing your family has financial protection. Getting started is real easy. First, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes to find your best price. Since their licensed agents work for you, not the insurance company, there's zero hassle. If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, Policy Genius will take care of everything. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. Now, the best part of it all, all the benefits of Policy Genius, the comparison tool, the handling of paperwork, the unbiased advice are totally free for you to use. Policy Genius can promise that you won't leave their website feeling like a fool. And you can save 50% or more by comparing life insurance quotes and feel good knowing that if something happens, your loved ones will be taken care of. So go to policygenius.com to get started. That's Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. You see, my, I'm so impressed with Joe Biden as a person, as a human being, more yeah. so even than as a politician, because... You know, every single one of us has had some form of a personal tragedy happen in their lives I, 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 or know somebody who has. So you could certainly empathize with their hardship, with their loss, though I do believe every single person has, you know, some tragedy type story in their life. But what impresses me the most about Joe Biden is 
one of two things happens to people post-tragedy. Either they become weak and they sort of regress because the tragedy is so overwhelming and it's so and it, it, it creates so much despair that they don't know how to contend with the loss or they become stronger, right? Nobody ever goes back to normalcy after tragedy, um, you know, and the word normalcy is really an unfair word because psychiatrists or psychotherapists, they always tell you there's no such thing as normalcy. So I'm probably not using it in the right way. But the point I'm trying to make is Joe Biden became stronger from his tragedy. And his loss actually translated into a benefit to America. As right now, I do believe that America is in its darkest stage that we have ever been in when you're coming off of Trumpism and an individual that wanted to shit all over our Constitution, shred our democracy, all in search of gaining more acclaim for his messed up shitty brand of bronze and, you know, and crappy marble, right? You have an individual that took the worst loss that, that I could possibly imagine, right, and turned it into a positive not just for himself, obviously becoming the 46th president is a massive accomplishment, but also for the country in terms of being able to help to rebuild that divisiveness that we were talking about at the beginning of this show. And look, again, I'm so sorry for his loss, but it certainly has translated, as far as I see it, into a benefit for America. Uh, I mean, look, you don't if your goal is just to help people, there are probably easier ways to do it in which you don't receive the kind of glory you receive by getting elected president, right? Any Anyone who seeks the presidency or who seeks it three times, as Joe Biden did, obviously has considerable ego and wants something for themselves. But it's true, I think, that that his gift of empathy and the pain that he has suffered has translated into this kind of healing power for people. It does seem to really matter to people that he appears to be a really decent person. And I, it's hard to imagine, you know, all presidents are similar in some ways, right? They all wanted the same thing. They're all attracted to power. But it's hard to imagine someone more different from Donald Trump than Joe Biden, even for the you know the kind of surface level qualities that they share, they're they're both old white guys of a of a certain generation, but in terms of how they relate to other people or their awareness even of other people, or their ability to empathize, uh, it couldn't be more different. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question because you then turned around and you also said uh, this was not a story I expected to write. What did you mean by that? Um. The, the story you're referring to, uh, it, it was uh, an event with Jill Biden, the First Lady. I believe it was on February 24th. Um, and when I arrived to, uh, it was at a hospital in Virginia. And when I when I arrived there, I got the news that my, my mother had died. So uh, that that's what I meant. I did not expect to, to be writing about death in uh, and loss as it relates to the Bidens in as personal a way as I as 
the events in my life demanded that I write about it. I'm so sorry I didn't know about that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. Um, let me ask you this question. You first interviewed Trump in 2014, and then you did so again once he was president while he was sitting behind the Resolute desk. Did you notice a difference in him um, between those two separate interviews? Was there anything different that you can sort of remember? Yeah, I mean, well, the first interview I did with him in 2014 um, was actually by phone. I remember uh, Sam Nunberg arranged it, and I was like in the back of a cab when when he called, um, kind of haphazardly taking notes. Um, and then I interviewed him in Trump Tower in, I believe it was April of 2016 um, during the campaign. And then I interviewed him in the White House in uh, in 2018. And the, I mean, he's, he's the same guy, right? But I remember thinking in 2018 that he was so strangely um, quiet. And there was a sort of um, monotone way that he was speaking where it was like the life had been sucked out of him in a way that was very strange and very, um, very not human. And he seemed to almost be, um, to almost be posing in a way, if that makes sense, to kind of try to be looking very serious and very stern and sort of uh, puffing up his chest a bit. It was almost like he was acting he was trying to act the part of he was trying to act the part of being a president yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah and so it's not that when i when i interviewed him in 2016 i i left and i thought like oh what a normal guy <laughs> you know he's an extremely weird person as you know but there was there was a sort of performative aspect to him in the white house and it makes sense like he i can't imagine there's any place on earth where donald trump is more comfortable or was more comfortable than in his office at trump tower i mean he'd been there for so long uh and he's surrounded by things that are extremely familiar to him and in the white house even that that far into the his term i think that he just never really seemed comfortable it always seemed like a performance and that, that was probably the biggest difference to me. Interesting. Interesting. But, you know, Olivia, as we're winding down the hour, uh, I just have one, one additional question for you. In a recent Politico report, Jason Miller, who I absolutely fucking despise, was reportedly <laughs> bragging about the dozens of Trump books being written and his scheduling of interviews at Mar-a-Lago for everyone, from Michael Wolf to Maggie Haberman and both you and Ryan Lizza are also writing your own books on the 2020 campaign. Have you guys spoken with Trump since he left office? I can't disclose anything about my book. <laughs> well, I'm not asking you to disclose your book. I'm just asking, have you spoken with him since he left office? Uh, did you have to go through, you know, Jason Miller in order to, you know, schedule an interview at mar It's unbelievable that he needs the likes of somebody like Stephen Miller. Well, I'm sorry, Jason Miller, in order to schedule anything. I mean, he can't, you know, he can't schedule himself. It's not as if, though, anybody is really looking to speak to him other than, you know, a handful of journalists or Newsmax OANN or, of course, Laura Trump for another stupid-ass interview. I'm, um, I'm just curious. Have you spoken? I mean— 
most presidents and most former presidents have uh I don't I don't mean to sound like I'm defending Donald Trump, but most presidents, most former presidents, most former politicians have schedulers or have people who who arrange things for them. And as you know, prior to Trump's uh political career, it's not as though obviously he would call up reporters himself or summon them to Trump Tower himself, but he also did have a secretary who who arranged things for him or or a minion to do it for him. So of, of, of no, all the criticisms of the former president, I don't know that I think that having uh, having someone assist him in the scheduling of interviews, it's, it's really up there with uh, with the things that he could be uh, criticized for. As it relates to any reporting for my book or uh, any conversations with the former president for my book, I can't say anything. Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, as you know, I'm actually in the process of beginning uh, the writing on uh, my second book, him? which is nothing to do with. Uh, well, I have no interest in interviewing him. I have no interest in even, you know, having his name appear in the book because it's not about, it about him. It's all about the Department of it's about the Department of Injustice. It's basically a forensic analysis based off of documentations, but legitimate documentations, uh, starting from the Steele dossier all the way to the unconstitutional remand of me back to prison. I think it's going to be an eye opener in terms of what happens when you have a president who weaponizes the Justice Department with a weak scumbag like Bill Barr, who is willing to turn around and to, you know, use the power of the Department of Justice to go after a citizen uh, and, in essence, not incarcerate him once but twice. But, Olivia, I do want to turn around and say thank you so much for joining me today. It's, uh, it's always great to hear your voice and um, hope to speak to you again soon. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Be well. And now for today's mea culpa. Matt Gates is learning the painful lesson of what it means to be useless in the eyes of Donald Trump. It is a word that he is most definitely applying to the congressman as I say these words. Useless in Trump's speak is to be wholly and completely without power or clout. To be useless is to be unable to do anything to help Donald Trump. One becomes useless at the precise moment that they become most in need. I can clearly remember the moment I became useless. It was when Trump conveniently forgot on national television that I had been his lawyer for more than a decade. To be useless is to have also committed the cardinal sin of getting caught. You become a liability at that point. The prospect that you might flip and say something incriminating about the boss is always at the forefront of his mind. Thankfully, I never took a deal to help myself, nor did I ever rat. I owned up to what I did and served my time even for a bunch of shit that I didn't even do. That's the difference. A rat takes a deal to help himself and then spills the beans. I did my time for what I did and then simply told the truth as it was asked of me. And boy, was I ever considered useless at that point. Mainly because I refused to prioritize Donald Trump over my family, my country, and my conscience. You are only to use of Donald Trump when you are helping him continue his lifelong scam. I was so useless at one point that they put me in solitary for 51 days for talking to the press. The next time you hear that word, think about what it means in the context of Donald Trump. I never felt better about being useless in my entire life. Besides, I'm plenty useful at the moment downtown, especially to the Manhattan District Attorney. 
And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. May occultists, nothing but the truth. Really long. We'll meet up later. How long will you wait? As long as it takes. So you guys are only going to do this one ride all day? It won't be that long, probably. Mom, can you get us food? Wait, wait, are they cutting? Caleb, food is so far away. Should I say something? Daddy, pick me up. Mom! Hey, there's a line here. Daddy, swing me. That's like 20 people. One person holds the line for 20 people? This is bullshit. Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.